The verse this morning, the passage is, is short, but incredibly powerful. Let me read that for you. It is Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to detour him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Let us pray. Lord, the words that you give us and the stories that we read about your journey on this earth are meant to teach us, to affirm us of your presence, and to guide us forward so that we may live more fully in your will. Let that be so this morning. Amen. I had to go quiet on that word, you know. If we recall what happened last time, I said A-M-E-N with conviction. Right after the passage, the dog thought we were all done. <laughs> World's shortest sermon. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So it's all about volume. I'm learning. Anyway, so this is, this is an important section of the Gospel of Matthew. In recent verses right before this, the focus does shift to John He is out baptizing there at the Jordan River. People are coming to him. People who are good and holy in spirit, people who are less so, but they are curious about him. And in the verses before that, Jesus had been growing up. We had snapshots of him, a few as a child, and lots of time that is not covered in the gospel, but years that that bring him up to approximately age 30. And at this point in the text, we can imagine that here at the Jordan River, right before Jesus arrives, we can imagine that John is very much not alone. There are many people there. There are men, young men, old men, faithful and honest men, and those less so. There are healthy men. There are sickly men. There are men who are married, men who are seeking, men who are mourning a woman who has left this world. And there are women. There are young women and old women. There are married women, single women, poor women, rich women. There are women who have children, women who long for children, women who are well, and women who are not well. And there are children Little ones playing along the river, those sleeping in their mother's arms. There are children who are watching, children who are playing, children who are hiding, children who are laughing and crying. And amid all of this, there is John. John, who was born to be present 
for this very scene. Of course, many other features of John's life would be urgent and significant, but God placed John on this earth for this moment, these few verses. This is a short scene. It barely qualifies as a full story because it is so brief. But it is a story, and a story of importance. And this morning I want to look at this story through the lens of the three key players who are part of this story. And the first of those is John. John has been baptizing people. He is out there at the river, long hours spent in the sun, in the water, preaching that Christ is coming. He is baptizing by water, and he preaches every time that this is just a prelude, is the beginning for what is just about to come. He is preaching off the grid, meaning he doesn't have a big, golden-tinted synagogue with all kinds of flourishes. He doesn't have the acclamation and support of other high people in the church. He is a rogue of sorts. He is on his own out here in the the wilderness area with, with the river and trees and all of the surroundings, and that is his temple, the temple that points him to point others toward Christ. That is the work he is doing He is unsure in his spirit when things will change, when he will meet Christ, but he knows that his job is to prepare the way, and that is what he is doing. In and out of the water, praising God as he baptizes people and readies them for the coming of Christ. That is who John is and what he is doing now. And even though He constantly ties everything to Christ. When Christ comes and stands beside him and asks to be baptized, John is thrown. This man who had been confident enough to break away from standard expectations and to be out at this river in in the middle of nowhere and, and baptizing people in the name of the coming Christ freezes when that individual when that holy essence of God is standing before him. In the presence of Jesus, John feels unworthy and suddenly unable. This man who had done everything that he had been commanded to do in order to bring attention toward Jesus and God is now standing beside Jesus, and he freezes. He, in his human walk on this earth, is overwhelmed by the godly presence of Jesus. And who could blame him? Again, all day he had been dealing with the core of humanity, the good and bad, but the incredibly human people. And now he has Jesus, and he freezes. He pretty close comes to refusing to baptize Jesus. It's like, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. He feels unworthy and unable. Ultimately, he agrees. Ultimately, he consents. Ultimately, he takes the place that God had prepared for him to be the baptizer of people 
and the baptizer of God's Son. Dr. G. Flattery points out that John the Baptist was a forerunner for the Christ, the Son of God, that his whole position here was to be subordinate. Subordinate means to be under and to be willing to obey those who are above you. Subordinate here means that when Jesus reassures and says, we need to do this, let us do this, baptize me, John ultimately gives way and baptizes. You can imagine what was going through John's mind as he conducted that baptism, the whole central portion of why he was here on this earth and what he is doing here in this story. We don't get any inner text about what happens after that. In fact, John is not part of the rest of the story. He consents and he baptizes Jesus. And then his spotlight fades into the background because the spotlight shifts. That is John's role in this story. Second, we have Jesus. Jesus, whose birth had been hallowed by the star above, by the angels, the shepherds, the wise men with whom we we met up last time we were together. And he has had these years to grow from a baby to a toddler to a child to a teen and now to an adult. And he walks without fanfare into this scene. We do not know or see any indication that anyone knew who he was when he approached John at the river. He indeed identifies himself in the conversation with John. In fact, he doesn't even call out his own name, but John knows. And John took, again, took the the hesitation he had and set it aside and baptized Jesus. This quoted conversation with John is the first quoted dialogue from Jesus in the direct path of his intense three-year approximate ministry. These are the first words in that time when Jesus is portrayed in scene after scene in, in every event possible with children, with Pharisees, all kinds of people over the next years. This is the first time that we have quoted words from him. So when he speaks these words to John, that he needs John to baptize him and they need to do this to fulfill righteousness and to to set the path moving forward, we have to make note that when an author of the worldly sort makes a character speak, that is so that the audience's eye is drawn more toward that character and we learn more about the character. Of course, the Bible is greater than that. God's inspiration is behind every part of it. So when Jesus speaks, and speaks humbly and directly, we have to note that those words have to be looked at closer. And yet when we look at them more closely, we see no judgment toward John for hesitating. We see command, but we see humility we see that Jesus is asking John to do something that is very simple and yet profound. These are contradictions right and left. 
It seems hard to, to resolve that this is the Son of God asking this very human individual, John, to take him and to go with him into the water and to baptize him. Theologian Eric Barreto points out that Jesus, in these words, in this passage, is a combination of power and humility, of authority and submission, of power and relationship. And because it is Jesus, the Son of God, it is okay. The contrasts somehow are fine. That Jesus is willing to humble himself to be baptized by this man, and yet he does so by giving the command that filters from God, this must be done. And we might wonder, why in the world does Jesus need to be baptized? I mean, he is the Son of God. What's that all about? Why couldn't that step be skipped? There, there is no answer that we have to that from this passage. But much of the message of Jesus is meant for us to ponder, to revel over, and to believe. Jesus somehow knew that this needed to be done. And so he said, we need to do this to fulfill this righteousness. From the birth in a manger, to the baptism by a man in a river, to the crucifixion on a cross, we as believers can ask why many times. Instead, though, in Jesus' words, in his role here, we maybe, instead of saying why, we can declare, I trust there is a reason, and we simply believe. So that is the key role of Jesus in this passage. The third entity here is God. God is present always. God is present in an incredibly tangible way in the second half of this small story. When Jesus rises from the water, we hear that the Spirit of God descends like a dove upon him. Descending like a dove. I'll go English teacher here a minute for you and identify that as a simile. A simile is a comparison between two things using like or as. It takes two things that are not the same and draws them together with the word like or as. And in doing so, it creates a comparison that the reader or the listener can better imagine. And so we do not know what the Spirit of God would look like. But here it is written and described as the Spirit descending like a dove. We know what a dove looks like. We know that in the flying and swooping of a dove, there is grace, there is beauty. In the soft white gray of a dove, there is gentleness. And so we can imagine in that comparison that the Spirit of God descends in grace, in gentleness, in softness, and settles upon Jesus. We can imagine that in our minds. We can paint that picture, and we know that God is in that dissension of the Spirit upon Jesus. And in fact, this is the first declaration 
of God out loud about his son, Jesus. And in that declaration, we need to learn. Look at the words that God speaks immediately after the Spirit descends upon Jesus. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So three parts. First, this is my son. This is a relationship statement. This is a fact. This is an ownership and a bold, confident ownership. God begins his words here with the declaration that this is his son. This is my son, whom I love. That is very significant, that the thing that immediately follows up the relationship is the declaration of love. It is not another softer word that has less punch to it. It is love, the greatest emotion that the human mind can conceive of. God says, not only is this my son, but I love him. It is unquestionably a claim on relationship and on absolute convicted connection and love. With him I am well pleased. Then comes pleasure. God is pleased with Jesus. He is pleased with whatever preparations these past first 30 years in Jesus' life created, and now he is pleased that Jesus is ready for the intense ministry ahead of him. God speaks those words from heaven that has opened up above him, above Jesus and John and everyone else around. God speaks these words and they ring out. And they are without any hesitation. They are convicted, they are firm, and they are so reassuring. Because in this announcement from God that this is his son and he loves Jesus and he is well pleased with him, this is the first outward, very concrete connection that God and Jesus are one in the same. So we always speak of the triune God, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and this is the first declaration during the life of Jesus that we see the full connection. We even see the Spirit in there binding the two entities together. Other times upcoming in future parts of the text of the Bible, you will see other words from God presented, and they will claim that connection again. But here we are witness to the first time. Theologian Mark Allen Powell points out that because God, who had been worshipped, is now equating himself with a son he loves and with whom he is well pleased, Jesus is worthy and able to be worshipped too. Do you follow me on that? That the people to this point had been fairly free and open to worshiping God, but God has now not transferred but expanded his godliness so that, yes, you may still worship me, people of this earth, but this is my son whom I love. 
With him I am well pleased. It is like an endorsement. It is like an anointing. It is, it is as if we here in this text and everyone who was around then now has a clear example right in front of their eyes that God is saying we are in the same position. We are in your life in this way of God and Son and Holy Spirit, and it is all worthy to be worshipped. So John and Jesus and God make this scene pretty stunning. It's quite unforgettable, even in its brevity. And yet, there's a portion of the story that we don't receive here. Because while this was happening, while Jesus approached John and asked to be baptized, and while John almost refused and then consented, And when Jesus came out of the water, and while the Spirit of God descended upon him, and when the heavens opened up and a voice from heaven came down, and that voice declared kinship between God and Jesus, and love between God and Jesus, and pleasure in what this ministry was about to become, the people were still nearby. The people I mentioned at the beginning of my message the men who were old and young, rich and poor, who were happy or sad, married, widowed, or single, the men who were good or not so good, but who had been drawn to this river, and the women of the same mixed backgrounds, and the children who had come probably just because their families did. This passage doesn't tell us about them while this is going on. Try to picture it in your mind. Again, a likely very chaotic scene with plenty of people around and about, sprawled on the banks of the river, mingling around, talking, eating, chatting, taking turns going to John to be baptized. And then we single in on the baptism, on Jesus. Those people disappear from the text, but we have to assume they didn't disappear from the scene. I want you to imagine, to imagine what this was like for them. I imagine a man seeking goodness in his life, coming to the river, being baptized, staying around, and praying for guidance. And then he sees the sky open up, and the Spirit descend, and hears the voice of God ring out around him. I imagine a woman whose health has been failing. Out of desperation she came. Who is this Christ that John speaks of? And as she struggles forward and pants and maybe has pain and maybe knows that her days on this earth are limited, 
she sees the Spirit descending, and she hears God speak. I imagine the family that has been fraught with struggle. I imagine the couple who have fallen on financial hard times. I imagine the aging patriarch of a family who worries about the goodness and faithfulness and well-being of the people who follow behind him in his family tree. I imagine the child playing in the gravel along the river and hearing this noise and looking up and knowing that the voice he hears is bigger than the big voice of his father or his grandfather. It's God. Friends, what would they have done? What would those people who came to this river out of curiosity, out of desperation, out of skepticism, out of pain, what would they have done when they happen to be there the day, the moment that Jesus is baptized and the heavens open up? How would they have felt? What would they have done? What would their response be? We do not get it from this text. But my heart says and my imagination says that that moment of the baptism and the speaking of God from heaven above, that this is his son and he loves his son and he is well pleased with his son, that that moment had to be life-changing for the men and women and children who gathered nearby. I imagine that as they sat on the banks of the river and witnessed this incredible moment where God and Jesus and the Spirit and all of humanity was joined together, I imagine that praise filled their hearts, that they could not have understood exactly what they were witnessing, but they knew it was bigger than anything they had ever experienced before. I imagine that their hearts filled and that their spirits soared, and that they rose to their feet, and that they began to sing. I imagine that the praise that filled their mouths and poured out of their lips was like nothing they had ever been part of before. Because while their limited understanding would keep them from getting the whole gravity of the situation, they had to know in that moment that they were in the presence of God. I searched for a video that would capture this whole transformation that I imagined they had, from sitting in the shallows and playing in the river and eating and talking and drinking and resting in the area of the Jordan, from this very earthly, very simple, very unsuspecting moment the rise from that to praising the reality that they were in the presence of God, that they were there when God spoke, and that not only were they there, but that God spoke of hope and unity. I found a video. I found a video that takes a song not from the banks of the Jordan, not from the dirt upon which a picnic lunch might be spread, but takes a group of people 
who I imagine to be much like the individuals I just imagined being at the site where Jesus was baptized. In this video, this group of folks are gathered in the living room. There is no stage. There's no audience. Living has occurred in this living room. You know what I mean. The laughter, the tears, the brokenness, the hope, the excitement. And they sit together and they quietly begin a song. And as they sing, the Spirit of God fills that room. And what begins with a couple of voices gathered together in a living room becomes praise, becomes awe, becomes awareness that they are privileged to be near God in this moment. I'm going to ask you to watch, but mainly listen, to this video. It's, it's a little longer for a song. It's about seven minutes. But it's a journey worth taking. And as you see these people not on a stage in fancy dress with spotlights and special effects at a concert, you see them in regular clothes, sitting in a living room, starting quietly, and realizing that they have been privileged to be present for the revelation of God being joined with his Son through the Spirit, and nothing will be the same again.
Is that what they did when they were in the presence of God? Is that what we do when we realize with awestruck wonder the privilege of being included as a child of God? Did those people gathered by that river who heard those words from our God stand and praise him? And what did they do afterward? Did they walk back into their lives with a quiet knowledge that nothing could ever be the same again? Oh, I hope so. And I hope that we all can live that way. For the baptism of Jesus by John in the presence and audible confirmation of God is wonderful. And if it does not stay with us, with the awe and reverence that it deserves, then we have lost a chance to be in the presence of God. Let us not do that. Let us hold and stand together in our living rooms, in the weeds and dirt and gravel, in the sweat and tears, in the joys and the sorrows. Let us stand together and know that because God spoke that day and declared his loving and pleased relationship with Jesus, everything is possible if we live in awestruck wonder and we remember the gift, the many gifts that God gives us all the time. Let's pray. Lord, we do adore you, and we do confess to forgetting that we adore you when the world pushes us down and anchors us in the day-to-day minutia that is not pleasing and is not loving and is not wonderful. Among the weeds and the gravel and the dirt and the sweat and the heat and the strife of our lives, may we be conscious all the time that you meet us there and that if we remember that, we can live in a way where the Spirit of God is in every part of what we do and say to your glory, to your honor, 